Philippians 3, and we're going to read 8 through 17. It's going to help us out a little bit this this morning. Especially as we as we think about, we continue to talk about the race of endurance. Uh, Philippians three is very helpful in understanding what we're aiming for, what the end is. Philippians three eight through seventeen. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Twelve, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. And finally, verse 17, brothers... Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Pray with me. God, use your words, your truth, and make known to us the infinite worth of your presence, of our fellowship with you. And remind us the remind of us the path that it takes to get there. Help us to see. Help us to know and to hope. Help us to live by faith in knowing that the end will draw near. And in the end we will see you face to face. We will see your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, we started the beginning of Hebrews 12 last week, and it, we looked at it really in the context of our Advent theme of joy. Uh, but when we look at chapter 12, it's really hard for us to separate the first three verses from the next uh, 10 to 15 verses. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at that section at a whole. And you remember in the beginning of Hebrews 12, there's a great call to action. And that's to let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. That's a race that's set before each and every one of us. It might look different from person to person, but each one of us in Christ has been set forth in a place for us to run, to live. 
It's not a small call to action. I want you to understand this. It's not something we intermingle within our lives, like on Tuesdays and Thursdays, you know, I'm going to make time to run this race. Or, yeah, I'll run hard on Sunday mornings and sometimes on Sunday evenings. No, if you're a Christian, (coughs) the race you are to be running is to overtake your life. No, it is your life. The race you are to be running is your life. Now, the race we're called to run isn't one of nonchalant participation. Because you might say, oh yeah, I'm running. I'm in the race. But just simply acknowledging that you're in the race and perhaps giving minimal effort to it every now and then, it doesn't cut it. You know, Paul says something about a race. Uh, I think it's to the Corinthians. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So then what's his command? So run that you may obtain it. I like uh, in the NSB, he says it this way, run in such a way that you may win. And if you run in such a way that you will win, it's not that no one else gets the prize. We're all running the same race, but just a little bit different. But the end is the same. The prize is the same. Run in such a way that you may win. Now, I don't want to put put words in Paul's mouth, um, but I'm, I think it's pretty clear when you look at the whole landscape of Scripture, and especially the New Testament, the words of Jesus and the epistles, It's very clear, and I think it's safe to say, that if you're not running the race to win, you might not even be on the track. Okay? Now, as a Christian, if you aren't living your life in in pursuit of the prize of God, then, then at best, at best, if you're not running this race, living your life in pursuit of the prize which is God, you, at best you might be missing the whole point of Christianity. You might misunderstand the whole point of the cross, of the gospel. You're missing the whole point of the reason for Christmas, of why God sent His Son. Right? He didn't send His Son to just give you a direct hall pass to heaven. He sent his son so that you might be in the presence of God and also that you might be like his son. But that's at best. At worst, as I said, you might not even be on the track. You might not even be running the race. You might be deceived and might not be a Christian at all. Because, because the Christian isn't just called to run to win the prize. Christians are saved to win the prize. And when called, saved, to run the, run the race towards the prize, the life we live is in pursuit of God. And as we saw in Philippians, that's why I wanted to look at, at Paul's letter to the Philippians, we see that he's that he is running this race, but what does he give specific details that he is after? These are the things that he says. Knowing Christ, 
to be found in Christ and His righteousness, to know the power of His resurrection. And lastly, the thing that he says he's after is that he may attain the resurrection from the dead. At what point of the race is that? That's the end. That's the end of the race. That's the end of this life. The power to obtain the resurrection from the dead. Paul has his sights on the end. He is focused on finishing. Look what he says back in Hebrews 12. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Still in Philippians. My apologies. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 17. Look at these words carefully. So he finishes 11 saying that he, he by any means possible, he, he desires to attain the resurrection from the dead. And do you know what happens at that moment from the resurrection of the dead? The race is over. You see Christ and you're like him. Right? Perfection is the end. Look what he says, though, in 12. Not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Make what his own? Perfection. He's not simply waiting. He's not like, oh, I'm in Christ. I'm going to sit here on my chair and I'm going to wait to be perfect. No. He says, I'm going to press on to perfection now. I'm going to seek holiness, which is a word we're going to see over and over again today. I'm going to seek perfection and holiness in Christ, the righteousness that comes through faith in Christ now. I'm going to press on. He's going to continue. He's going to endure. Why? Not because he wants Jesus to be his. Very important. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward, straining, that sounds like a work, a word of endurance, right? Of pressing on, straining forward to what lies ahead. I, he says it again. I press on, but look what he's pressing on towards, the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus this is the finish he's after. God in Christ Jesus. In verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And you say, oh, I'm not mature. I got to pass. No, that's an excuse. Because we're all called to maturity in Christ. It's what Paul worked countless for. That's why he told the Colossians, he, he, he speaks to the Colossians Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Not just the ones who've been Christians for 50 years, not the ones who have been going to church for a long time, not the ones that know their scriptures up and down, back and forward, but He is wanting to proclaim, warn, and teach everyone who is in Christ that they are presented to God mature in Christ. On that final day. Verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. What? In the race that's set before you. Join in imitating me, pressing on towards perfection, towards holiness. 
and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So there's our connection back to Hebrews 12. Because Hebrews 11 has given us a whole laundry list of people to set our eyes and follow their example of running the race, of seeking something beyond the here and the now. Chapter 11 of Hebrews, all those people in chapter 11 ran the race. They had their spiritual eyes set on the finish. Moses, Abraham, Jacob, Rahab, David, all of them were looking to the finish line. Undistracted by the world around them. Here's some of the things we see in there. Looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, their current condition. They desired a better country that is a heavenly one. This was the race that was set before them, and they had their eyes fixed on a great reward. And I was thinking, what's the best way in the Old Testament to say to quote the reward that they were after. And the thing that kept coming back to my mind, that the saints in the Old Testament that they were after, and David says it, to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is it. To dwell in the house. not And we're not talking about a mansion. I don't know how big the house of the Lord is. If it's a shack, it don't matter. You know why? Because the Lord is there. This is the prize, God himself. For us, the race we're running, the path we ought to be on, also leads us into the presence of God. But we've got to understand something about this path, and here's how we're going to make our transition into what we're seeing in Hebrews 12. There's something about this path, something that it does to us. Anyone who truly runs the race who is on the path, the track towards the glorious presence of God, will, and I emphasize, will be transformed by the path that they are running. You cannot get on the path towards God in Christ Jesus and not be changed. Let me put it simpler. When someone pursues God... Inevitably, they pursue holiness. If your true end and destination is God, along the way, you will become more like His Son. That's the race. That's the path. This truth, this truth, this reality is strikingly clear. In this section of Hebrews 12. Look at verse 14. Back in Hebrews 12. Look at verse 14. It's just one of those verses you can't argue with. Hebrews 12 verse 14. It's the latter half of the verse here. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness. So strive for the holiness. Without which no one will see the Lord. So you see that? Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Basically, he's saying, without holiness, you will not see the Lord. You can't argue with Hebrews 12, 14. 
But notice the way that I have said it in the beginning here is sort of reversed and in a positive form. When someone pursues God, inevitably they will pursue holiness. Why? It's because the path to God is a one-way, narrow-way street. It's the path of Jesus Christ. You understand that? The only path, the only race you can run is right behind Jesus. What do we know about Jesus? He's the Word made flesh. He's the Son of God. He's the only one that God has ever declared, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because he knew no sin. The path to God is following Christ in Christ-likeness and holiness. This is is why we must understand the foundational reality for all who are in Christ, born of the Spirit, made alive to God. God himself has plucked you from the world, okay? Okay? You've got to realize that. You've got to you've got to know that deep down inside. And we saw that in Hebrews 10, verse 10, this plucking of of sinners out for the sake of God's service, God's presence, plucking them out of the world. Hebrews 10:10, 10, 10, and by that will we have been sanctified, set apart, plucked out, cut out and set aside. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. By his will he has sanctified you through the offering of his son. He has set you on a course towards holiness. That's what has happened. He has set the race before you. Look at Hebrews 10.14. Again, he's going to make the same point. I've said I've said multiple words here. I've said sanctified and I've said holy or holiness. Same same concept, same Greek word. Verse 14 of chapter 10. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And that is present tense. Those who are being made holy. So you're probably starting to wonder, okay, so what's this got to do with Hebrews 12? What's going on in Hebrews 12 when it comes to running the race, following Christ, holiness, finishing? We find out a main method that God uses to accomplish the very task of making sinners like us into the image of his son. What's that method? Discipline. God's discipline towards us is expressed here in Hebrews 12 as a main method of accomplishing the task of taking sinners like us, rebels, and turning them into holy saints. Saints just means holy ones. To be like his son. The discipline of the Lord. His rebuke and his reproof of us. And his fatherly chastening of us. 
All right, look at verse 5 and 6 of chapter 12. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Now this is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, Solomon writing Proverbs to his son. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now jump down to verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed fit to them. But he, being God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Now those four verses pretty much preach themselves. It's pretty clear. Don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. It's so important. It's a massive thing. And the writer of Hebrews says, it seems as if you've forgotten it, Hebrews. Don't brush it off as unimportant. Don't forget about it. Don't disregard it. The quote from Proverbs says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The discipline of God towards us is an act of love. The discipline of God towards us is an act of God's love towards you. It is a distinguishing mark of being a child of God. His discipline towards you is always for your good. Always. No matter how bad it seems, the final end or purpose of his discipline towards you is your holiness, your Christ-likeness. So here's what we're going to do for the rest of this morning and also the next time we come together to finish this. It won't be next week, but it will be the, the following week. So... There's four things that we're going to get out of this, um, and we're not really going to get past number one today. I wrote in my note, quickly look at the topic of discipline in a general sense, and I marked out the word quickly. So this is the only one we're going to get to today. Uh, but then when we come and, – and I'll mention we'll, – we'll, you'll, you'll get to see some of the other, but we won't fully dwell on these next three until we come back into Hebrews in two weeks. The second thing is understand discipline in the context of this letter, especially chapters 10, 11, and into 12. Um, And then the third thing is we're going to observe three essential realities to not only understanding God's discipline, but responding to God's discipline. And these are three doctrines that are very key in Christianity, but they're very key in helping us to, to wrap our minds around uh, the, the divine discipline of God towards his children. And those three things are this. And we've considered one, and we'll you'll hear it a lot today. Number one, holiness. If you don't have an understanding of holiness, or, no, let me back that up. If you do not have a desire for holiness, the, the discipline of God, is it doesn't exist. If it's for 
the purpose of holiness. If you do not understand, if you do not desire holiness, then this is going to be weird to you. Uh, The second thing, sonship. I I grappled back and forth, sonship or adoption. You, You will see how those two things are similar. But if you do not understand, if you do not have a grasp of the fatherly love God has towards his children through Christ Jesus, this doesn't make a lot of sense. And the third thing is the sovereign providence of God. And we'll touch a little bit more on that here in the end, just a little bit of a broader definition. And the last thing is a final word of encouragement. I'll give you a bit of that this morning. Okay, so number one, what is discipline? When the Bible talks about discipline, what are we talking about? Well, the Greek word used in this chapter is the same word that's used in Ephesians 6, 4, which I know we're all familiar with. Uh, Ephesians 6.4, I'll just read it for you. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture or discipline and instruction of the Lord. So discipline or nurture, whichever whichever translation you have, the word is paideia. Uh, It's got such a broad use in Scripture, uh, but yet it's also narrow. And I don't want us to get us too lost in the weeds in in this, but, but in the days of the writing of this book, and, and the, the writings of Paul in the time of Jesus, the Greeks had a very rich understanding, or I'm sorry, a very rich culture of building up their children in discipline, whether it be educational or military. They were very concerned about bringing up their children and creating a culture and continuing their culture uh, during that time, but the the Jews had a very similar desire in cult enculturating their children. Right? You just go back and look at the Old Testament, and you have God continually telling the Israelites to teach your children, tell your children, remind your children, do this, so that when your children ask what that's for, then you can tell them, you can train them, uh, not just. In a verbal sense, but there is also the discipline and uh, of in a physical sense that's very, very evident in uh, in the Old Testament of using the rod to discipline your children. And so the the Jews, uh, like the Greeks, had a very a very rich history of discipline and training their children to enculture them in life. Uh, but the Jews, especially the Christian Jews, really grabbed onto this word, this Greek word, paideia, um, and adopted it as their own. And Paul was very, very form, uh, very upfront in doing that. In Second Timothy, Paul says this. Y'all know this one really well. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof. For correction, for paideia, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. So there are multiple ways that you and I can think about discipline from Scripture. You can definitely imagine someone, even in life, you can definitely imagine someone disciplining themselves for the sake of physical training. Uh, we We know the saying. No pain, no gain, right? That's discipline. That's training. Uh, 
that, that, that idea comes back to, to paideia, to discipline. Um, but we can think of it in the sense of receiving instruction, as Paul says in 2 Timothy. We receive instruction from the Word of God for the sake of what? Learning, growing, understanding. But in our text this morning, and all these can come under this umbrella, but under but for our text this morning, it very much has this father-child dimension of discipline. You can't avoid it, right? Sons, sons, fathers, fathers, sons. It's, it's just evident. Look at verse 7 through 9. Hebrews 12. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? So the writer here is wanting to talk about the discipline of God, but he uses this universal reality that we all should probably have some sense of, and that's earthly fatherly discipline. He uses it expecting for us all to have some bit of comprehension or experience with being disciplined by our fathers. But I want to pause here for a second, and I want to make a point. And this is going to get ahead of myself uh, when we start thinking about sonship and adoption, but that's okay. Our fathers, when we think about our earthly fathers and our earthly fathers who raised us and disciplined us, we got to be. We've, we have to remember that they are sons of Adam. Okay, they're sons of Adam. We acknowledge their discipline was not perfect. Let's get that out on the table. And for us who are fathers, we can acknowledge it. That our discipline is far from perfect. Some discipline we've experienced was actually out of sinful anger, to the point of abuse, that it hurt. And we kind of keep that in mind that we've experienced fatherly discipline that hurt. And then we read the scriptures that says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. And then we might be hesitant to think, oh, then, yeah, bring on the discipline, God. I remember that pain. So what I want us to keep in mind here, I don't want you to put up a barrier to God's discipline because of the failure of your daddy's discipline. It should be the opposite. That when we taste and see how good the love of God is, the Father is for His children, that He he desires the best, our holiness, and in doing so wants to discipline, has to discipline us, that we might be corrected and learn. That we could sit here and think, oh, I remember, I remember... My failures as a father. I remember the failures of my father, but I know how good God is. And even if it's painful, I know I can trust him. And I can go to him, even in the pain of discipline from him. God's discipline is not punishment in the sense of punishing crime or guilt. It's not condemnation. No, it's the opposite. 
The discipline we receive from God comes to us from His love. And we've all parented in that way. In our good parenting. When we, we, we want to discipline our kids because we love them. Because we don't want them to die. Because we don't want them to get burnt on the stove. Because we want them to make good choices when they grow up. And so when they act like a, a, a fool on Friday night, you discipline them. Or when they get mad and pull their sister's hair, you discipline them. Not because you're angry, but because you love them and you want to train them. You want to train them. This is the discipline of God. Sometimes it is painful. But ultimately, it is a loving discipline for your good. Look look again at 10 and 11. For they, our 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 earthly fathers... Disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, now notice that in this Advent season, in this time of calling to run a race of endurance, notice the time frames in the first part of the verse and the second half of the verse. For the moment... All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I didn't plan on going here, but you've got to go and look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, right? We can't overlook this. 2 Corinthians 4. Uh, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Now, uh, spoiler alert. This is a big theme in Hebrews 12. Christ suffered hostility against sinners so that you might not grow weary and faint-hearted. Lift up your droopy hands and strengthen your weak knees. I know because I, I, I know that you are tired because I'm tired. I know you're weary because I'm weary. But the big message we have to understand here is that God and His Son and by His Spirit are loving you, dying for you, pouring themselves into you, disciplining you so that you could... Run the race for another day. In obedience. In love. By faith. We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. It's now. Our inner self. Which lives forever, right? Is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal. So we've got a momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So you're being disciplined by the Lord. And guess what's so visible? The thing that hurts. The pain. It is so right there. But by faith, you can see the love of God, your Father, who wants and cares and desires your good and your holiness, and you can only see it by faith. It's eternal. The work that the discipline of God is doing to you, even in this momentary affliction, the result is eternal and beyond comparison to the pain. Beyond comparison. So if any of you have experienced uh, discipline, sinful discipline, I should say, from a from a father, from authority, and I assume we all have. Some of you more than others. Don't let that drive you from God, but let it drive you to God. His discipline for you is good and right all the time, every time. And without it, if you run from it, if you hide from it, if you ignore it. You might, be, you might be putting yourself out there as an illegitimate child. Because without it, you are not a son nor a daughter of God. Lastly, when it comes to discipline from God, what's he doing? What's taking place? What does discipline look like? Well, the, I think the answer to some degree, is in verses 5 and 6, the quotation from Solomon and Proverbs. In my translation, the, the, wording, the words are a little bit different and kind of scattered from, say, the KJV, but they're all making the same point. We see that we're not to regard the discipline of the Lord lightly, but what is the discipline of the Lord? He uses these two words. Reproof and chastise. Reproof or reprove and chastisement. Now, the word, these words help us understand God's discipline a little bit more. Because it's his intention behind these two types of words, reprove and chastise, his intention is to correct you. You find yourself in the wrong somehow, and don't don't just assume that that means you're in a grievous sin. That might not be the case, but you're in the wrong somehow, and he intends to correct you. Well, it's not hard to assume that we're in the wrong, right? The discipline of God towards his children is a is it's divinely intentioned to it's divinely intentional, and its divine intention is to correct. And you're like, well, what's he correcting me from? Well, verse 1 of chapter 12 is helpful. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And we've already said it's for our holiness. The divine discipline of God is helping us shed our unrighteousness, our sinfulness. He is disciplining us for our good to share in his holiness. Sometimes it's a reproof. Sometimes it's a chastisement. Hey, sometimes... Sometimes the Lord disciplines you by the words of your spouse. He rebukes you 
by the truth coming from even your children. I hope every Sunday, every Sunday night or any time that I stand before you that what comes from this pulpit is so saturated by the word of God that you are being disciplined, trained or corrected. And in your own Bible reading, don't don't just read to feel good. Because there are some places in the scriptures where you read and conviction ought to weigh heavy. Because correction is needed. And I'd say, if you don't ever feel like you need correction, then we might be getting to the point that we read in 1 John chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, boy, we're in trouble. So let's, let's hear the word of God preached. Let's read the word of God in our homes. Let's hear the word of God from our spouse, our friends, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And let's hear it with the idea that we might be wrong. We might need a little correction. The conviction of the word of God and however it comes to us sheds light on the sinfulness in your life because the light does what? The light sheds light on evil. And in your heart, it gives you an opportunity to learn, grow, repent, be corrected. Sometimes it comes at a great cost. The Lord disciplines and great pain may be felt. That's what verse 6 in Hebrews 12 is saying. And in verse 11, but he said he uses the word in verse 6 from Solomon, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. That word, my translation is chastise, yours might say scourges. Here's what I, I want you to connect this word to another place in Scripture. Hear this. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And here it comes. And after flogging him, after scourging him, they will kill him on the third day, or kill him and on the third day rise. The word is. In Hebrews 12, verse 6, chastise or, cur- or scourge is the same word used to describe the flogging Jesus received. Now, what I'm not trying to do is, is I'm not trying to compare the flogging of Jesus to the discipline we receive from God. I'm just trying to show you that the point being made is sometimes it really hurts. The discipline of your father for your good sometimes may feel like he is beating you over. Because sometimes, guess what? You need it. I need it. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh? For him, to me, the pain appears to be physical. But what was the point of what Paul said about the thorn in his flesh? He says this. Paul says, to keep me from being conceited, from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh. How painful was that for Paul? I don't know, but I do know that he pleaded three times with the Lord that it should leave him. 
So it was painful enough that he had to go to the Lord and say, take it away, take it away, take it away. Because it hurt. But what was the end result of God putting a thorn in the flesh of Paul? It was his holiness. It was to keep him from conceit, which we acknowledge is a sin, right? God gave Paul pain. You understand this. God gave Paul pain in order that he might be made more like Christ. I'm going to ask you this morning, are you ready to stand with Paul and say, as he did in Philippians 3, by any means possible, Lord? Now hear me. By any means possible, Lord, whatever it takes, do unto me your servant, most importantly, your son, do to me as you please, in order that I may know Christ, be found in him, be like him both in life and death and in this resurrection. Do you love Jesus that much? Paul learned more about the grace of God from that thorn. He learned more of his faith from that thorn. He learned more of joy and contentment in Christ from the pain of that thorn from God. For a moment it might be painful, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I've just got to finish real quick here. As we close this morning, I do want to introduce you again to these three essential realities. Just... I want you to think about them over the next two weeks and kind of have a, an understanding as we come back and talk, talk about them in depth. But I also want to take a quick look at a, at a one verse in Revelation to show us how, we to, how are we to respond to God's discipline. Next week, Christmas, we won't be in Hebrews 12. Uh, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you to come and meet with us if you're, if you're in town. Because we've read in Hebrews that the day is drawing near and that we're not to neglect to meet together. We're not to make that a habit. If there's any reason to come to church Sunday, number one, it's because it is Sunday. And number two, it's Christmas. It's just bonus, right? It's a bonus. So come Sunday and worship with us. Hey, the family can wait. If, if, if the food gets cold, we'll just crank up the heat. Okay? If we got to wait, you got to wait. If you got to miss out on that whatever game that happens afterwards, it's okay. But let us not neglect to meet together this coming Lord's Day. All right, those three essential things real fast. The purpose of discipline is our holiness, Okay? As the text says very clearly, he disciplines us for our holiness, and without it, we cannot see God. You, we're going to spend quite a bit of time on that last statement. The reason for our discipline, the reason behind it, the grounds of it, is our sonship, our adoption. God disciplines us as our Father. Thank be to God. <coughs> We've been adopted into the family of God as sons. God's discipline is a marker. It is an evidence of being a child of God. And how does the discipline of God come about? It comes about through the sovereign providence of God. God is in control of all things. He works together all things for his glory and for our good. And sometimes that includes painful discipline. 
Think about Job. Paul's thorn in the flesh. Even in chapter 10 of the Hebrews, what they've gone through, the hard struggle and suffering, the reproach, the affliction, the imprisonment, the illegal confiscation of their property. God is in control. So look at, look at Hebrews, I'm sorry, Revelation 3, one last verse. Revelation 3. As Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea, look at verse 15, how bad it is. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. What would you either, uh, would that you either be cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, Laodicea, I'm rich. I've I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that we are wretched, pitiable, uh, pitiable. Poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And what is he doing? He says it in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. As bad as Laodicea is, they are children of God in Laodicea. And we know this because he says, I am, discipl- I am calling you to correction. I discipline and reprove those whom I love. But what is the response he expects from his children whom he disciplines? It's there in verse 19. So be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. Of course, we all know what repent means. Have a change of mind. Turn from your sin and towards the Lord. As for zeal, what does he mean? That word is a picture of heating up. Aren't they lukewarm, right? He says, you need to heat up for me. You need to be, you need to be moved by who I am and what I have done for you. Well, this morning, the love of God through Jesus Christ is being poured out on you, each and every one of you, through reproof and correction. And some of you might be experiencing discipline in your life that no one knows about from your Heavenly Father. He's calling you to repent. He's calling you to zeal. He's calling you to be moved. To pursue Him, pursue holiness. And I'll just say this. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Here's here's this major connection you've got to see and will be done. To take lightly or to disregard the discipline of our Father is to disregard the cross of Christ. I want to say that again because this is the most important thing I've said today. To take lightly or to disregard the discipline of the Lord is also to disregard the cross of Christ. It is to take lightly the crucifixion of our Lord because the, one of the major aims of the cross isn't just your forgiveness of sin, but your purging and your purification from sin, not just in eternity, but in this life now. 
Hebrews 1.3, what does it say about the work of Jesus? A purification of sin. 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience, not in eternity, but now from dead works to serve the living God? 10.14, for by a single offering, the cross of Christ, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What is one of the major aims of the cross of Christ? Your Holiness. Jesus bought your holiness with his blood. God the Father wants to discipline you for the sake of your holiness. You disregard one, you disregard the other. You disregard holiness, you disregard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, have mercy on you. We all must respond today in repentance and zeal. Because Christ has died for us. And the Father loves us. And so, let us run today and tomorrow this race that's set before us. Let us be corrected and pursue the presence of God. Pursue holiness like the sun and run by faith. Let's pray. Lord God, this is a hard and heavy thing that we have learned and read about today. But let your love outweigh the difficulty and the pain. And let us see and understand that this is how you work. For your son was victorious through suffering. And who are we but his servants? And how might we escape such suffering if he was willing to endure from such sinners hostility that we might not grow weary and faint hearted? And so help us this Christmas week to run with endurance, looking to the end, dwelling on the infinite, precious value and worth of standing in your presence, seeing you before the throne and the lamb that was slain. Glory to God on the highest and peace on earth. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, who was born this day and one day shall return and dwell on this earth forever. And might we, Lord, by your grace and mercy, make it to the end and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In Jesus' name, amen.